Hey, everybody. Dennis Prager here with Fireside Chat number 251. 252. 252. All right. Now, I don't know if you know, Otto is in place, and not however, and Snoopy is under my legs again. We're starting to think that after 250 episodes, he has a little Otto envy. Maybe he knows how famous Otto is and envies that fame. It's hard to know because dogs do communicate, but not verbally. Anyway, welcome to the Fireside Chat. And this is my opportunity to just talk to you with whatever is on my mind. This is as spontaneous as, well, as something this big can get. I mean, a lot of people just talking to a video, and I think it's great. I think people should express themselves. I, I, I think it's a good development. Uh, but a lot of people watch this, and it remains spontaneous. Then I take your questions, wherever you are in the world watching. Hi. So Megan, the original Megan, who's now a mom, and quite happy to be a mom, and now Megan too, is doing a great job, by the way, Megan picked out an interesting tweet that I'd like to comment on. It's from a woman, young woman named Shelby. How'd you find this? Just on my Twitter feed. It was on your Twitter feed? Yeah. Are you a follower of her or somebody retweeted no, it? I think it just got retweeted because it was a pretty popular tweet. Yeah. Well, yeah. 231,000 retweets. Yeah. Oh, that's serious. Mm -hmm. Am I the only one that sees a problem with working eight to nine hours a day and then going home to having about four hours to yourself, which includes getting ready for the next day? This is not life. Ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. And then she added, correct? She added this, this next one. Yeah. Then to be married and have kids on top, on top is capitalized, of all of that, wild. No wonder people are depressed and going through it. That's too much to handle. Oh, there's another one, but we don't see it. Okay. So I have a few thoughts on that. Prior to modern feminism, most women, most women's work was the home. And then feminism came along and said, that is demeaning work. Going to an office, that's elevating, ennobling, worthwhile, purposeful. Just being a mother and a wife, making a home for your children and your husband, oh my God, that's lower than being a cheerleader, which feminism has never looked highly upon because they cheer for men, generally speaking. But the, you know, by the, I'll bet you didn't know this. There are colleges that passed rules that women's sports must have as many cheerleaders and as often as male sports. Yes, just give you an example. Of course, why should, why should women be cheering for men and not for women? So the same cheerleaders would have to go to women's sports, which not many people are watching, not because they're anti-women, but because they, they don't do most sports as well as men. It, it, this is not a... This is... <laughs> this is not... An issue except to the academically inclined. Anyway, back to the issue. That was the way it was. I read 
Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, sort of the initiating text, the sacred text of modern feminism. I think she wrote it in the 50s. I, I just read it last year. It was about as depressing a book as I recall reading and how awful it is for women. They're not taken seriously. They're expected to be mothers and wives. So now we have this young woman who's not a mother and not a wife and complaining about going to work eight or nine hours, which means nine to five or nine to six, which is the normal workday. What do you think men have been doing all of these years? Going to work eight to nine hours and then coming home and then getting ready for the next day. But they didn't complain about it as much because they assumed that this was what men do. Men work hard and then they have a weekend, which is not a little time. They have a Saturday and a Sunday not to work. So that's, that's, not, that's not all that bad. And not only that, prior to feminism, they found phenomenal meaning in supporting a family. Men will dig ditches if they know that it takes care of a wife and children. That is what gives us a tremendous amount of meaning, and meaning is everything in life. So with all of the talk about feminism, feminism, and feminism having elevated women's lives, this question seems to betray that it hasn't done such a great job. Sure, if you have some really glamorous work, like professor of gender studies, then you might find this very meaningful going to work because college professors haven't worked nine hours a day since they decided to be a professor. It's about as cushy a job as exists. I know I was a college professor. It doesn't get easier than that. You teach one or two classes a day and that's a heavy load. And that's three hours. And they're not grading papers the other five hours a day, I promise you. So if you have a cushy and glamorous or cushy and or glamorous job, maybe the idea is wonderful. But for most people, what this young woman described in this tweet, that's, that's life. You work hard. That's correct. And if you're lucky, you get paid a decent wage. You can support a family. You can have a community. You can have a weekend. I mean, th there's a lot to be said for it. Also, I wonder if, if, if people, men or women, didn't work eight hours a day. Let's say they worked six hours a day. What would they do the extra two hours? Would it be meaningful? I don't know, but it's an interesting question. So maybe it wasn't such a horrible idea in the past, this divvying of duties. The man works hard, then comes home and prepares for the next day. And the woman works hard, but at home, not out of the home. And in the meantime, they're hopefully raising somewhat normal and happy and somewhat happy, perhaps, children. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? 256,000 people retweeted this because they related to it. And I'll bet 248,000 of them were female. It's not that glamorous going to work in most jobs. It just isn't. It may not be glamorous to be a mom and a wife. 
Maybe life isn't glamorous. Maybe one finds meaning outside of the glamorous. But people think in terms of the glamorous. And they shouldn't. My father was an accountant. It's not glamorous. But he was a very happy man. He was happy that he, he earned the money to make the family tick. By the way, my mother worked too, as it happens. She was hardly a feminist. Her life revolved around my father. She, she adored my father. By the way, he adored her. They were married 69 years. Together, 72, 73. It's a lot of time. It's an amazing thing when you think about it. When she died, he was crushed. It really, he kept living biologically, but he, he sort of died with her. But that gave him great meaning. He learned, by the way, to love his job. He had a very important attitude. He wanted to be a doctor, but his family could not afford medical school. That was really his first love. He became an accountant because it paid money. He never thought of being an accountant. And you know what he did? He turned being an accountant into the love of his life, professionally speaking. That's what everybody should do with whatever job they have. Everything in life is attitude. He wrote his own autobiography. He published it himself, of course. It wasn't going to be widely read. I read it. It's a wonderful book. Attitude and Gratitude. That was the name of his book. And he was right. Your attitude and whether you have gratitude... They summarize your life, your life. That was a good attitude that he had. So she says, and being a, a, a wife and mother on top of that, yes, you're right. That's very rough. Maybe it shouldn't be on top of it. Maybe it should be instead of it. Or, and do perhaps some, some work when you can at home when you have a break. Anyway, can you name me many jobs that are more meaningful than making a happy home? Seriously. I can't think of any. Okay, let's go to the questions. They're, oh yes, that's right. I, that was Pavlovian on my part. Hi, Mr. Prager. I'm Elijah and I'm 17 and from Manchester, England. My question is, in the least cliched way possible, how do you relate your feelings of awe aesthetic experiences with your interpretation of the divine? Thank you. Not what we call an everyday question. So I will read it for you, in case it wasn't clear. In the least cliched way possible, I only talk in least cliched ways, how do you relate the feeling of awe at aesthetic experiences with your understanding of the divine? Well, since you confine it to aesthetic experiences, I really am happy about that because it's, it's, it, it would have been a very broad question. So I will tell you that some music, without question, makes me feel the divine. As many of you know, I'm very deeply into classical music. I conduct orchestras periodically. I, I fell in love with it. It was love at first sight, at first hearing, when I was a sophomore in high school. I so loved it. I lived in Brooklyn, New York, 
and I was uh, I had a Carnegie Hall, most famous music hall in America. I had a Carnegie Hall ticket that was given to high school kids for one dollar. And since I did no homework for four years of high school, I was interested in everything else. I decided I'll just take, I took a dollar ticket to ballet. I got a dollar ticket to an opera. I got a dollar ticket to a concert. I got a dollar ticket to a museum. I got whatever it was, a dollar ticket, oh, to Shakespeare, whatever. I wanted to, I wanted to experience everything. So I figured, what the hell, if I don't like it, I lost a dollar. Big deal. Even then, one could say big deal, even though it was a lot more money than it is today. Well, anyway, I went, and it was, it was literally love at first sight, first hearing, because I'm looking and hearing. I was up in the balcony, quite far from the musicians, but I was mesmerized. I was mesmerized intellectually, aesthetically, emotionally, in every way, so much so that I spent my next month's lunch money on concert tickets. I missed lunch for the next a month to buy concert tickets. It's totally worth it to me. And to this day, you ask about the, the divine. So Bach in particular, uh, this is what I say. I have, uh, I have three favorite composers. I have many I love, but three favorites, Bach, Beethoven, and Haydn. When I want to feel the divine, I listen to Bach. When I want to be happy or happier, I listen to Haydn. And when I want to feel powerful, and I don't mean it in a a narcissistic sense, that giving me strength to to fight for what I believe in, I listen to Beethoven. They they have very different effects on me. But I, I will answer your question in a very interesting way. I have argued for years that music is an argument for God's existence because music has no evolutionary use. None. Why did it develop? Why is it so? It's universal, by the way. Everywhere, every culture has, makes music. Why? What's the evolutionary use of it? We don't, we don't know of any. It seems, to, it seems to be a gift that God gave to the human species. And, and so that, it does touch the divine for me. Okay, next. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tony, 62. My 14-year-old son occasionally makes demeaning comments about being adopted. We adopted him from Ethiopia when he was three. I know going through puberty is tough, and our society now makes a racially integrated family harder to deal with. Isn't that sad? Not our society, the left, the woke. Conservatives don't give a hoot of the color makeup of your family. He seems to throw comments at me from nowhere and certainly doesn't want to talk about them. The comments sometimes regard adoption, sometimes race. What is a wise way to respond? So here is an interesting response for you. The wise way to respond is not by asking yourself, what is the wise way to respond? Just respond. Period. End of issue. The only wise way is what you actually think and feel. That's the wise way. And what I think and feel is, hello, my dear son. I don't give a hoot if you're my blood or you're my egg. 
you're my son. That's all that matters to me. And I could say this, I, Dennis, can. One of my two sons is adopted. It, it is a non-issue to me. Non-issue. I don't give a hoot about my seed. I care about my children. That's my son, not my seed. I'm not in love with my seed. I'm in love with my children. So it means nothing to you, and you should tell him that. If it means a lot to you, there's nothing I could do, dear son. It means nothing. And you, by the way, there's an interesting way to prove that that blood... The, ooh. It's funny because I was just about to say something about dogs. Oh, boy. I have no idea what's going on, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Otto. You're the, you're the best. You are the best. Well, not the best, but close. So how many of you love your dog, like, almost like a member of a family or even like a member of a family? So let me understand something. You could love your dog tremendously, unbelievably much, but, but not an adopted child? You can love another species, but not someone not of your bloodline. It's so absurd to me. So I don't know what there is to talk about. Yes, you are a mixed race. But, uh, dear son, I think that race or skin color is as important as shoe color. Thank you and have a great day. If you think it's important, then I failed in communicating right values to you. I'm sorry, but it means nothing to me, your skin color. Nothing, the capital N. And that's it. There's nothing else to say. I don't care if you're my blood. I don't care if you're my color. I care if you have my values. I care if you're a good person. That's it. How are we doing? 19 minutes. Okay, next. Okay, let's see. Gary, 50, Perth, Western Australia. The only part of Australia I didn't get to, which bothers me. No, not the only. I was on the whole East Coast. I was on the South Coast. I was in Darwin in the Northern Territories, but I wasn't on the West Coast. And I wasn't in the center where Ayers Rock is. They don't call it Ayers Rock anymore, do they? They gave it a native Australian name. Hi, Dennis. I've been in the workforce for 30 years and have noticed the rise in modern psychology being implemented, especially in the way of wellness programs, self-actualization and mindfulness. It has become mandatory for employees to do these courses and workshops. Considering that Judeo-Christian values have always taught people to be selfless, does modern psychology teach people to be self-centered? Interesting. Okay. And then he asked about meditation, about which I know very little, so I won't comment. There's no question that modern psychotherapy and psychology is profoundly narcissistic. Profoundly. How you feel is the message of most psychotherapists. Every psychologist and psychiatrist I've had on my radio show for, uh, for decades, I've asked, so how many, of, how many in your profession are competent? And they almost all answer the same, about a third. So two-thirds are incompetent? That's correct. 
a lot of a lot of therapists are there to reinforce the patient's feelings of being a victim, which is usually a, a perverse form, or not perverse, uh, psychopathologic form of of self-centeredness. It's narcissism. Oh, you feel you were you were uh, hurt by your parents. You certainly were. Instead of you know what everybody's hurt by their parents. That's part of life. And it's time for you, you're now 25, this happened when you were nine, it's time for you to grow up. How many therapists say that? They're afraid they'll lose a patient. And then they probably will. People often go to therapists to feel vindicated in their victimhood, not to actually get better. So yes, I think you're absolutely right. There's a tremendous amount of narcissism in the modern psychological world. Oh, Kanoke, let's see. Terry in London, 45, London. Hi, Dennis, I am trying to be more grateful. Good. I have everything to be grateful for. Amazing parents, a beautiful family of my own, our health and also our finances. Man, you seem to have it all covered, I got to say. My head is not on straight. I am in a lucrative industry though I've made far less money than I would have liked to at this point. That sounds bad, but I work crazy hours with a lot of stress, and the output isn't matching the input. I live in London, surrounded by trust funds and Ferraris. It is hard not to covet, and it is hard not to be envious and ungrateful. I appreciate any thoughts of yours. Thank you, and for everything you do, thank you. Wow. It shows how profound, I mean, this is not exactly a profound comment, but how profound the influence of our environment is. You're in a world that sounds obsessed with money money and, and prestige, and it's affected you. Not much I can say. You seem to have delineated it yourself. I feel for you, I... I uh, I, like everyone, have had parts of my nature I had to battle with. Coveting has never been one of them. I've never given a hoot if somebody else was more successful or made more money or anything like that. I'm very lucky because it's never affected me. And yet it affects a lot of people. It's a very irrational thing. But I guess it's because it's a feeling. It's, it's not based on reason. You have a wonderful family. Maybe you should contemplate on what would happen if you lost them. I don't mean by death. Just, just lost them. Maybe even by death. I'll bet you, you wouldn't complain about not having a Ferrari then. It's too bad people don't value what they have until they lose it. There's an old saying in Oregon where they have a huge or had a huge timber industry. I don't know if it's still true. So there was a saying that the lumber workers would had, you never know the height of a tree until it falls. That's the human condition in a nutshell. When you lose it, you know how great it was. Maybe you should look for different work. Maybe you should move where there are fewer Ferraris. Move to a middle-class neighborhood. 
Well, you'll have the best car. <laughs> you know, I have a video I made. It's how I met Alan Estrin, the man whose idea Prager University was. In the 1990s, we met because we did a movie together. You could see it. It's free on the Internet called For Goodness Sake. Put in For Goodness Sake, De Dennis Prager. You, you will see. You'll see me in the 90s. For that alone, it might be fun. See me 30 years ago. And it's, it's about goodness, the, the pre, preeminent importance of goodness. We have a very funny scene in there. It's just scene after scene of a guy giving a eulogy for a guy who died. And he spoke about what a great car he had. And it's a funny scene. It's meant to be funny. Has any eulogy ever been about the car that the dead had? The best car in the world, they wouldn't talk about it. It seems like only when people die do we know what is important. Was the person good? Was he loved? Did he have close friends? Did he raise decent kids if he could? That's what we talk about, right? not his Ferrari. So you have to, you have to work on yourself, which is obvious that you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have posed the question if you didn't realize it yourself. But those, uh, read my happiness book and what, or even just watch that film. I, I, it's just for that scene. It might really hit you. How are we doing? 26. Good. All right. I guess it was, you know why I'm asking? Because it was briefer opening comments than usual, right? Okay. And 73, Maryville, Tennessee. Hi, Dennis. I read too much news. It is making me anxious, but I seem to be addicted. I don't want to spend my last years worrying about my children and grandchildren like this. How can I break my addiction? I quit smoking 40 years ago, which I thought was the hardest thing I've ever done. This is harder. <laughs> I would appreciate any advice you could give me. Thank you. Well, I have, again, I could speak for myself. And, and remember, news is, is my profession. I, I've, I'm a talk show host. I've been for 40 years. I have to know what's happening in the news. And it's not fun. There's, there's a lot of depressing stuff happening. But I do take one day a week away from news. I don't listen to the radio. I don't look at my phone. I look at my phone if, if, if a family member or a friend sends a text. Even, even other people know not to text me on my Sabbath. From Friday night to Saturday night, I don't know what's happening in the world. I don't even read a newspaper. I don't go online. 24 hours a week. I don't know anything about what's happening in the news. I suggest you do the same thing. Other than that, every I'm a behaviorist. You're addicted? Stop it. That's it. How do people get sober? They stop drinking. Now, they fill that void with God and with meaningful things, higher power, as they say, in the 12-step programs. So you might have to fill it as well. Take up a hobby. Read, read some of the great novels of history. I mean, there's so much you can do instead of, of watching news 
Okay, let's see. Here's a light one. Ethan, 24. Austin, Texas. Hi, Dennis. I know you love music, particularly classical music. I was curious if you listen to movie soundtracks. I would like to hear your thoughts. That's funny. I would like but not love to hear your thoughts. If you wouldn't love to hear my thoughts, why'd you send the letter? I'll bet you would love to hear my thoughts. I don't think he's telling the truth. Thank you and everyone at PragerU for what you do. By the way, if you want to thank people at PragerU, please donate this week till the end of this month. Fundraising. You get we whatever you give is tripled by generous donors. Tripled. Give fifty dollars, it's hundred fifty dollars. Give fifty euros, it's hundred fifty euros. That was just fun. <laughs> fifty cruzeros. That's Brazil. It's 150. Anyway, whatever you give is tripled. PragerU.com. If you're in the U.S., 833-PRAGERU. Everything we do is free, but it costs a lot of money to make it. Soundtracks, I love them. My, I have said for years, the best music being written today, generally speaking, is not classical. Hasn't been for 100 years, with very few exceptions. Before that, it was classical. And it is now soundtracks. Really some terrific, terrific music. That's been true for, uh, since, since movies have been made, since the 30s. There's been a lot of great music. A lot of the greatest composers actually made their money writing film music. And sometimes it was better than their classical music. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Did you folks see uh, uh, Snoopy under my legs? Did you get it? Did you get that at all? Hey, go ahead, go ahead. Well, this is all live. Well, you know, we could. Uh, there we go. This is where he's been the whole time. Uh, we're not sure. What, this is a new habit, but as I said, I think I think he's getting a little jealous of Otto's attention and fame. But notice he did not fight Otto for the central spot. Well, everybody, great to be with you. I'm Dennis Prager, and see you next week. Thank you for watching this video. To help keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.